Well, do take a copy of the Bible, if you have it nearby, and turn to the book of Galatians. We'll continue our walk through this letter of the Apostle Paul. Galatians will be in chapter 2 today. What if I told you that in order to be a member of Crosspoint Fellowship, you have to vote in a certain way? Or to homeschool your children? What would you say if I told you that in order to be a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that you have to have a daily quiet time for prayer and Bible study? Or to listen only to Christian music? Or to read books only by Christian authors? What if I said that to become a Christian, you have to stop using bad language, stop watching inappropriate videos, and start attending church every week? How would you feel? What would you say? If you feel a bit uncomfortable with statements like that, it's because I just took a list of cultural and religious practices, some of which are quite good, even strongly encouraged, like Bible reading and prayer. And I've made them prerequisites for becoming a Christian. Another way to say that is that I've elevated the importance of some of the symbols and practices of Christian living to the place of defining the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. In other words, I've just declared that your justification before God, that is, your right standing with Him, is based on various acts and symbols of Christian living. On the other hand, if you don't really see a problem with what I've said, if you think, well, yeah, of course you have to go to church and stop cussing to be a Christian, then perhaps you're more susceptible to a false gospel than you realize. And you may be the very person to whom Paul would address this word of exhortation in Galatians chapter 2. And in fact, I would argue and submit to you that we all can tend toward this kind of legalistic mindset. And we are ready, by God's grace, to receive a word of exhortation and caution and comfort in the gospel. We'll be in the, the end of Galatians chapter 2 today, verses 15 through 21. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of this message, of this passage. Faith in Christ is the sole basis of the Christian life. That's it. Faith in Christ is the sole basis of the Christian life. Hopefully that will come out loud and clear as we read and study these verses together. I'm going to read for you verses 15 through 21. You may follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read, beginning in verse 15 of Galatians 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God bless this reading of his word to us today. Now, Paul has been explaining, defending his divine commissioning, his credibility as a messenger of the gospel. He comes right out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 6, saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you and turning to a different gospel. And so he's launching into an attack on these false teachers, this false message, essentially that says, in addition to faith in Christ, you have to live in certain ways, particularly and especially you have to follow Jewish religious codes, so circumcision for males and uh, dietary restrictions and observing certain days and festivals. All those things are mentioned throughout this letter as expressions of Jewish religious observance. And Paul is ready to say to them, if you embrace this, if you say, yes, in addition to faith in Christ, we also have to follow Jewish law, then you are abandoning God and you're believing a false gospel. But in order to really get to where he wants to go, which is to let's just get crystal clear about what this gospel is and what it means to be justified before God and to live before God, he has to sort of rebuild in their eyes his credibility as a messenger for the gospel. And so he spent the first chapter and a half not really explaining the gospel, but speaking of how he came to be a spokesperson, a messenger for God. So he spoke of his conversion while he was on the way to persecute the church. He spoke of how God himself, Jesus himself, appeared to him and appointed him as an apostle. He spoke of uh, how his gospel came directly from Jesus and not from other people. So the, the message he's been preaching, the ministry he's been performing, has been God's gospel and God's ministry, God's mission, apart from any approval or affirmation by other people. Eventually, he did go up to Jerusalem and meet with some of the apostles there, Peter and James and John by name, uh, and they do agree and affirm you are preaching the true gospel and God has sent you to the Gentiles. But, and he, he was very clear in the passage we looked at last week, I didn't need their approval. I had God's approval, and that's the only approval that I'm seeking. This passage is a bit of a hinge point where it, it, come, it flows out of what he was saying last week, where he, uh, he confronted Peter for his sort of implicit denial of the gospel of God's free grace by distancing himself from Gentiles. I can't eat with them because they don't follow Jewish dietary code. 
He confronted Peter about that. And then he kind of carries out from that and now launches into an explanation of and a defense of the true gospel. And so the rest of this letter really is more kind of to the point. So he's sort of set aside his, the, the case for himself as a divinely appointed minister, and now he is going to begin to get clear and precise on what the gospel is. Our passage today addresses two questions. Number one, how are we made right with God? How are we made right with God? And number two, how do we live for God? To the first question, how are we made right with God? If you look at verses 15 through 18, he makes this abundantly clear. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That's probably referring to him and Peter, because it comes right on the heels of what he had said to Peter in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. So it could be a continuation of the quote from what he said to Peter, or it could be that he's now just kind of summarizing the rest of what he said to Peter, or using that as a springboard, it's, it's a little bit unclear. But when he says, we ourselves are Jews, he's referring to himself and Peter, because most of his audience are not Jews. It's a Gentile audience. These are non-Jewish people who have been converted to faith in Jesus Christ, who have then begun to be taught, oh, I have to become more Jewish? Paul is saying, no. We ourselves are Jews by birth, meaning... We were recipients of God's law, right? Jews, the nation of Israel, were God's chosen people, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. And so the Jews by birth are recipients of these various blessings. We have the law of God. We have God's promises to us. We have God's favor and blessing. But the Gentiles were far off, right? Because they weren't God's chosen people, and so they didn't have God's law at all. They're certainly not trying to live up to God's law. They didn't even have it. And so he's sort of saying there's this mindset among the Jews, like we have all of these blessings and these privileges from God as Jewish people. We're not like these Gentiles who are far off from God. That's kind of quoting Ephesians 2.13, where Paul says that those who have been were far off have been brought near through the cross of Christ. So they're not trying to keep the law, and yet we were. We have God's law, we have God's promises, we have God's blessings, and yet we know, he says, even we, Jewish people, Jewish uh, recipients of God's law, we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law. In other words, their Jewish heritage and identity will not save them. Knowing God's law is not the same thing as obeying God's law, and no one Jew or Gentile successfully keeps God's law, and thus no one will be justified by it. In case you're not sure what Paul's trying to say, in verse 16 he says three times, not justified by works of the law. We know that a person is not justified by by works of the law. And then at the tail end of verse 16, where he says we've been justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because, and then he's going to say it as an absolute principle, an absolute truth, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not just a few people. He's not saying 
we didn't get justified by the law because we're not quite good enough, but those really special Jews, they got justified by the law. He says, no one will be justified by works of the law. Three times in this one verse, I think he wants them to get the point. You cannot be justified before God by works of the law, by law-keeping. So what does it mean to be justified? This is a big word, and it's a change in language. It essentially means a right standing before God. In the context, it's related to cleanness, because he's been speaking to Peter about how he had elevated these Jewish dietary codes about what was clean and could be eaten and what was unclean and ought not to be eaten. And we, were, we looked last week at how Peter had this vision back in Acts chapter 10 of all of these different kinds of animals being brought to him. And Peter said, I can't eat anything unclean. And God said to him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And so in that context, the context of Peter distancing himself from the Gentiles at the table, it's about cleanness, about ceremonial cleanness before God. And so to be justified before God seems to relate to that. It seems to be at least similar in concept to being ceremonially clean before God. That is acceptable to him for purposes of worship. But there's a new dimension introduced by this term because it's a legal term. It's a courtroom term. Paul isn't thinking only of ritual ceremonial cleanness, but of judicial righteousness. That is innocence before God, the judge. So to be justified in a courtroom setting is to be officially declared in good standing. And Paul wants the Galatians to see that they are utterly unable to earn themselves a good standing before God the judge by their acts of religious observance and avoidance of sin. No one will be made right with God by religious observance. That is a universal principle that Paul could not be more emphatic about in this verse. And just as he emphatically denies that a person can be justified by works of the law, so he repeatedly points us to the true and only basis for a right standing with God, namely, faith in Jesus Christ. Just as he said three times a person will not be justified by works of the law, he also says three times how, will you, how a person will be justified. A person is not justified by works of the law, but what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. There's number one. The very next phrase says, so we also, meaning the Jews at this point, Paul, Peter, the Jewish believers, we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That's the very same phrase. It's just the verb form of the word. Pistuo is the verb to believe, that is to have faith in. So faith in Christ and believe in Christ are the same idea, the same concept. Just one is the noun and one is the verb. And then the very next phrase, he says, uh, we, have been, uh, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order, what? To be justified by faith in Christ. It sounds really repetitive. Paul, why are you repeating yourself so much and saying the same thing over and over? I think it's because we have to get this right. 
He wants to be sure we understand the way that a sinner is made right with God. And it's not through faithful religious observance. It's not through faithful church attendance. It's not through checking the box of a daily quiet time of Bible reading and prayer. It's not through tithing. It's not through acts of service. It's not through not cussing and not watching the bad shows on Netflix. It's not through religious observance in any way that a sinner is made right before God. It is on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. In order for sinners to gain a good standing before God, to be declared righteous by Him, we have to set aside our program of self-justification. Our attempts at self-reformation or self-improvement. We must come to God not with an excellent spiritual resume in our hands, but with a heart achingly aware of our own moral bankruptcy, of our failure to keep his law, and with a tongue ready to confess Jesus Christ and his completed work at the cross as our only hope for a right relationship to God. This is the only ground of a sinner's justification before God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, have you believed? Have you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Have you laid down your efforts to make yourself acceptable to God and trusted fully upon Jesus and what he accomplished at the cross on your behalf? Oh, friend, believe it. Trust in Christ today. Turn from your sin and call upon his name and so be saved. It is as simple as laying aside your efforts to improve yourself and become acceptable and resting in faith on what Jesus did on your behalf. You can't get saved by do, and you can't get saved by don't. You can only be saved by done, what Christ has done for you at the cross. Well, Paul anticipates an objection to the doctrine of justification by faith. In verse 18, he said, or 17, he says, But if in our endeavor... To be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And what I think he means by this is, does justification by faith, that is being made right with God apart from religious observance, does justification by faith promote sin? Right? Does the gospel encourage people to, as he says in Romans 6, 1, keep on sinning so that grace might increase. Well, since God's going to forgive us, and when we sin, it invites God's grace, man, if we want more grace, we just need to sin more, right? Eat, live, drink, be merry. God's going to forgive it all anyway. No big deal. He's sort of saying, does our gospel invite that kind of criticism? Does it make Christ a servant of sin? And then he says, certainly not. May it never be. No, because, and then his ground for that is, if I continue deliberately in sin, that is, if I rebuild what I tore down, 
then I demonstrate that I never truly grasped the gospel of grace to begin with. I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I keep on sinning because I'm like, God's going to forgive me anyway, then I prove that I've never really gotten it. I didn't really understand the gospel of grace to begin with. I still thought I had to earn my way somehow into God's good graces. And there's a sense in which if our preaching of the gospel is not subject to some level of this charge, right? Wait a minute. Are you saying that obedience doesn't matter? Are you saying that since God freely forgives us and welcomes us by his grace, we are free to go on sinning with impunity? If our preaching of the gospel doesn't invite that charge, we probably haven't quite gotten it right. The generosity of grace is so radical and abundant that it can appear at first glance like antinomianism, which means a rejection of the law altogether. Antinomian, against the law. It can appear as though we're saying, we don't think God cares how we live. God's commands are irrelevant because he free, he's freed us from the law and saved us by faith in Christ. And so go on sinning. It doesn't matter. For example, somebody might, hear, might have heard my opening lines, those statements I was making, saying if you want to be a Christian, you have to be like this. Somebody might hear my opening lines rejecting, for example, the notion that you have to go to church to become a Christian and walk away thinking, hey, Kyle says Christians don't have to go to church. That's clearly not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that going to church doesn't matter. I'm not saying that for those who follow Jesus Christ, that there is, there is now no obligation upon us to follow through with his commands. That's not what I'm saying. But before we correct that misunderstanding, we need to sit and soak in the lavish generosity of God's grace in the gospel. It really is absurdly generous that God overlooks our sin and welcomes us into his fellowship and his family without regard to how well we've kept up with his commands. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, says the song. Friend, when's the last time you paused and considered and marveled at God's abundant mercy to you in Christ. Well, that's how the text answers our first question. How are we made right with God? The answer, by faith in Jesus Christ. And now, having set aside a common objection to the gospel, this charge of antinomianism, Paul now begins to explain the implications of justification by faith. And so in verses 19 through 21, he addresses the question, how do we live for God? How do we live for God? Verse 19, he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I'll break that down one piece at a time. Through the law, I died to the law. So through the law, that is, it was Paul's noble efforts to keep the law that made it clear he could not be justified by it. When he says he died to the law through the law, he's saying it was my familiarity with the law. 
It was my knowledge of the law that proved to me I can't keep this. I can't justify myself before God by works of the law because it's too much for me to do. It's, I am too broken and too sinful to carry it out. This is one important way that the law of God functions. It acts as a mirror to show us our impotence, our inability to be righteous before God. So Paul says it was through the law that I died to the law. Not meaning that the law is irrelevant or that following God's commands has no part in the Christian life. Rather, we die to the law as a means of salvation. To say I've died to the law is to say I have given up my efforts to justify myself by works of obedience. And there's good news here because since the law cannot justify us, neither can the law condemn us. I don't know about you, this is probably where I live more frequently. I don't necessarily walk around regularly thinking and assuming that my good behavior, my acts of righteousness and obedience will earn God's blessing. But I am a bit more susceptible to the notion that my bad behavior, my failure to keep the law, will remove God's favor, will remove God's blessing. So I don't necessarily look to the law on a regular basis to justify me, but I do assume that the law may condemn me. I don't know if you're anything like that. But because the law is not the source of your justification, neither, friends, is the law your source of condemnation. If you are in Christ, if you have been justified, declared right before God on the basis of faith in Christ, the law is not your judge. The law cannot condemn you. The law is powerless over us as a means of relating to God, as a basis for our righteous standing before him, our cleanness before him, our acceptability to him. So when he says, I've died to the law, I think that's what he means. I think he means the law is no longer the basis upon which my relationship with God stands or falls. The law does not justify me. The law does not condemn me. I died to the law so that, here's the purpose, so that I might live to God. That's a new Christian purpose statement, to live to God, that our lives would be Godward, aimed at God's glory, honor, pleasure. Having been justified by his grace through faith in Christ, we now aim to live our lives for God. And Paul's explanation of this endeavor, the the inner dynamic of this pursuit is rightly famous and remarkable. Remarkable. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a verse that Christians love to stitch on pillows and print on mugs and put on t-shirts. And there's good reason for it. It is a remarkable verse. It is a remarkable truth. It's remarkable because it points us to one of the most precious and perhaps overlooked doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of union with 
Christ. Union with Christ. One of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit is to unite a Christian to Jesus Christ. By faith, you are united to Christ. That is one with him in such a way that what is true of Christ is now true of you. Christ's resources are now your resources. Christ's future of glory is now your future. By faith, you have been united to Jesus in such a way that all that is true of him positionally is true of you if you are in Christ. Listen to Tim Keller on this very point. He says, I am in Christ, which means that I am as free from condemnation before God as if I had already died and been judged. I have been crucified with Christ. I've already died. Already my sin has been judged. And as if I, and I am as loved by God as if I had lived the life Christ lived. I'm united to Christ in such a way that it's as though I already died. I was already judged when Christ died. And I am as loved by God as Christ is loved by God because of his perfect record of obedience. In other words, Paul obeys God's law and lives out his life as a Christian from this place of bold confidence. I am fully forgiven, completely accepted, and radically loved by God because I am united to Jesus Christ. Since I am so fully accepted and loved, I am free to live out my calling as God's child, as Christ's servant in this world, and not in a frenzied effort to gain God's approval, but as a grateful outworking of the approval he's already given me in Christ. This is how the gospel influences and infuses our daily lives. This is how faith in Christ is played out in our daily relationship to him. We were saved by faith in Christ, that is justified by grace, by faith in Christ, and we live by faith in Christ. We live from this place of settled, confident assurance. The law did not justify me. The law will not condemn me. I belong fully and wholly to him because I'm united to Christ. And from that place of freedom, from that place of confidence, from that place of rest, I can carry out the calling and the commands of God with joy, with gratitude, with hope, with confidence. Martin Luther on this verse says, after we have taught faith in Christ, we teach good works. Since you have found faith in Christ, we say, begin now to work and do well. Love God and your neighbor Call upon God, give thanks to Him, praise Him, confess Him. These are good works. Let them flow from a cheerful heart because you have remission of sin in Christ. Don't obey God and His law and His commands out of a sense of trying to earn your place with Him or trying to get Him to smile at you or to notice you. Follow God's command, obey God's word, 
out of gratitude and joy and love because you know you are fully accepted before him, regardless of your law-keeping or law-breaking. Dear Christian, we've got to get this gospel sequence right. God's grace always precedes God's law. Our new birth by the Spirit of God always comes before our transformation by His power. Our justification by faith always comes before the works of the law that flow out from that justification. Every man-made religion involves a fundamental reversal of that sequence. It's always an attempt to appease God in some way by our actions or words in exchange for which we hope he'll give us his favor, his blessing, his mercy. This is the exact opposite of the gospel of Christ. We seek to obey and to please God, not because we hope he'll forgive us and accept us, but because we know he has already accepted us in Christ. And from that basis, we live lives of faith, lives of obedience. Friend, what difference would it make in your day-to-day living, in your relationship with God, if you truly operated out of this inner dynamic of settled assurance, of bold confidence, of your complete acceptance with God through Christ? How might this confidence in Christ free you to live out your faith in him through acts of service and devotion, through deeds of kindness and compassion, through, dare I say it, works of the law? And how might it free you to fall on his grace in repentance and trust when you fail to live it out rightly? Because you will. I will too. The gospel is not, we've got a second chance. The gospel is your past is washed away. You have a new and secure and eternal standing with God. Now live from that. And if you stand or if you fall, you are Christ's, period. Hebrews 4.16 that we heard earlier says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy. When do you need mercy? When you failed. You need mercy when you sinned. And you need God to overlook that, to forgive that. And grace to help in time of need. We need his mercy when we fail. We need his grace to obey. And God says, come boldly, confidently to me for both. Bring your failures with confidence to the throne of grace. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live but Christ lives in me. We're so connected to Christ, so united to him that it's as though he is living out his life, his righteousness through us. So he says, the life I now live in the flesh, middle of verse 20, I live by faith in the Son of God. There it is again. If you're looking for the answer to the question, how do we live for God? By faith in Christ. It's the very same answer. How are we made right with God? By faith in Jesus Christ. How do we live for God? By faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same. Faith in Christ is the sole basis for the Christian life. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
The cross of Christ is the proof of his love for sinners. It's more than that, but it is not less. How do we know God delights to save sinners and gives of himself to provide for their rescue? Because Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross for our sins. That is the proof of God's commitment to us. How do I know that I can rest confidently in the grace of God in Christ? How can I know that he is utterly devoted to my redemption, that his advocacy on my behalf is certain and immovable? Because he gave himself for me. The cross proves to us conclusively that Jesus loves sinners and that he will stop at nothing to see to their salvation and restoration. Dane Ortland, in his great little book, Gentle and Lowly, speaking of John 13, 1, where John says of Christ, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Dane says this, Jesus came to the cliff of the cross and didn't change his mind. He walked over the edge. If Jesus willingly walked over the edge of the cliff of the cross, there is nothing that he will withhold from you in his efforts to carry you safely to glory by his grace. Sisters and brothers, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the disposition of God toward you in Christ. He's not waiting for you to mess up. It's not three strikes, you're out. It's not try again, we'll see how this goes. He is waiting with blessing and grace and mercy to pour out upon you, whether you stand or fall, because your place with him, your standing before him, your relationship with him is not on the basis of how well you keep up with the commands that he's given. It's on the basis of Jesus Christ, his completed work, and your settled rest in him. This then is how Paul answers the second question. How do we live for God? By faith in Christ. Faith then is both the ground of our justification before him and the fuel for our ongoing life in Christ for God's glory. He concludes this portion of his argument by pointing out how absurd the cross of Christ would have been if what it took to please God was to observe the law. Look at verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Imagine a father whose only child graduates high school and hopes to go off to college, but the cost is so enormous and the father's bank account so bare that he can scarcely imagine how he might afford to send his daughter to college until he has the bold idea to sell his family property, everything he has to his name, in order to fund his daughter's college education. Now imagine he approaches his daughter after having finalized the sale of his home and tells her, my daughter, I have sold the family property and now I can pay your way to attend college. And his daughter says, oh, dad, I wish you hadn't. You see, I was given a full scholarship by the college because of my excellent grades. 
I've earned my own way into the school, and I'm no longer in need of any financial assistance, so I wish you hadn't made such a sacrifice on my behalf. Because the daughter earned her own way into the university, it was utterly useless. That is, for no purpose that her father sold his home for her sake. His generosity is nullified by his daughter's full scholarship. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here regarding obedience to the law and Christ's death in our place. If we could earn our own righteousness before God by faithful law-keeping, why in the world did Jesus go to the cross? That makes no sense. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's wasteful. It's torturous. Why would that happen? The only reason the cross makes any sense is because self-justification by law-keeping is a bankrupt effort. It cannot succeed. It is not how anyone will be justified before God. And because that's the case, the cross of Christ was absolutely necessary if God is going to save sinners. Setting cultural or religious customs alongside faith in Christ as prerequisites for salvation nullifies the grace of God in the gospel. If we require of someone adherence to certain religious codes in order to be a true Christian, we have consigned Christ to be crucified for nothing. We attribute saving power to human efforts at law-keeping and declare our disdain for the cross of Christ. We confuse the sequence between saving faith and the practical outworking of that faith in a transformed life, insisting that a sinner's personal transformation must come before his salvation. We elevate matters of conscience to a place of divine command, universal, universally applicable to all, and in effect become Lord and master over one another. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has no room for self-sufficiency or for human efforts at keeping God's law. All the gospel has room for is sinners. And rest assured, there's plenty of room for them. An old hymn that I loved singing when I grew up said, Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible, clarifying truth that strips us of any place of pride and arrogance, that we can't stand in your presence and boast of our spiritual performance, of our religious observance. We can only point to the cross of Jesus and say, on that basis alone, we plead that you will welcome us and accept us. And we thank you that that is precisely what you have promised to do. For all those who repent of their sins and look to Jesus Christ in faith, you welcome them, you redeem them, you restore them. We pray that you will grant us this grace, the grace of greater awareness of our tendencies to slip into law-keeping mindsets of our tendency to believe that our keeping of the law will either justify us or condemn us before you. 
For those who are in Jesus Christ, Lord, grant us the confident assurance that we belong to you no matter what. Because that work is settled. Because we are united to Christ in such a way that we've already been crucified and judged. And we've been raised to new and lasting life in him. If there's anyone in this room who has not acknowledged their sin before you, who has not set aside attempts to self-improvement and self-justification and rested fully in Jesus, we pray that this would be a moment that you would open those eyes and draw those hearts to you. Bring sinners to repentance and faith even now. And grant us at Cross Point Fellowship a spirit of gospel love and grace and unity and acceptance to walk with one another in patience, in love, in mercy, knowing that what we are called upon to extend to our brothers and sisters is only a fraction of the love and mercy and grace and patience that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. May we glorify you and express this gospel in the ways we confidently live. Not in a frenzied effort to earn your approval, but from a place of freedom and joy and gratitude, knowing that we are yours because of what Jesus has done in our place. We pray these things for Christ's glory and in his name. Amen.